Hey Kingdom Roots friends, thanks for joining us today. Today on the podcast, you're going to get the chance to hear the first part of a two-part lecture that Scott does at the Telos Collective in 2018 at Northern Seminary. Uh, It's a great lecture. In this first part of it, he'll hit on the first four elements that Paul invites pastors to in order to nurture a Christoform culture. So if that sounds familiar, it's picking up on our conversation from um, the previous episode on Pastor Paul and Paul's vision for what it looks like um, to be a pastor in the in the church. So um, before we jumped into the lecture, I wanted to extend a special offer to you that I mentioned in last episode. And in that episode, I had said this special deal that we're doing for anyone who purchases Scott's new book on Pastor Paul. We're giving the first lecture of a whole class that he did on this pastoral theology, the whole concept of what Paul understands about that. Um, We're giving you the first lecture totally for free, um, just as a thank you for purchasing the book. And um, we're actually not going to just end that at September 13, like I said we were. We're going to extend that for the whole month of September for you, our podcast listeners. I'm just so appreciative of you guys and how you rate and review and share and engage with the podcast in so many ways. So I want to make sure that you know about that. Again, just get on Amazon or wherever you buy your books from and um, get the invoice number and go to the link in the show notes that I'm going to provide down below and um, get your first uh, lecture from that from that class that Scott did, um, just as a thank you for um, always being there for us and, and being a part of the podcast. So really enjoy. Thank you. Really going to enjoy this first part, and we'll be coming with the next part in the following episode. But again, thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have the first part of a two-part lecture Scott does on the elements of a Christiformity culture. I want to welcome you from Northern uh, to our new facility uh, we're, we're glad that you're with us here and that you can see our, our place. But you may not know that um, most of you are the product of a professor who was here, and that is someone who gave rise to the revival of Anglicanism among evangelicals, and it was Robert Weber at Wheaton, and he taught here. So we, we have a long uh, checkered history with... Uh, evangelical Anglicanism, and um, many of us are really happy uh, that this event is taking place on, at Northern again, that we've welcomed Anglicans back. So, so thank you for coming, and uh, we hope we'll be good hosts as well. This, uh, what I would like to talk about, comes out of a project of mine that is now at a publisher, so I can't change my mind on... Uh, called Pastor Paul. It's a book on Paul's pastoral theology. And so I want to I address some themes there that I think touch upon uh, what, what we're talking about this weekend with culture. I really do feel that uh, it would have been good for me to be the last speaker because then I could, uh, I could be a biblicist and correct everybody. 
but now I have to go first and everybody gets to add on top of it and by the time we're done we will forget what the Bible said. <laughs> that is a comment about David Fitch who's coming next, but I didn't intend for that to be to be that direct. David does have good ideas, and I'm not sure he always knows which ones are the good ones. You're in here. Oh, man. I didn't see you. So, but David will, will probably bring some insight into, um, into the cultural dimensions, and I think he's very gifted at this. And I thought of beginning a little bit with that, but then I just thought, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'll talk about what I know I'm talking about, and that's the Bible. And I, I want to add this at the beginning. Uh, I'm not a pastor, and I know I'm not a pastor, and most of you are, and I'm a professor, and I know there's a big difference between professors and pastors, even though sometimes professors think they can tell pastors what to do especially Bible professors, and we can't. And, and I want to start with that admission, confession, uh, and just observation that I, I can talk to you about what the Bible says, but I'm not trying to tell you how to pastor a church, but I can talk to you about how Paul pastored. And so I, I want to I uh, do some of those things. Um, but before that, I want to offer a definition and then say that really that's all I have to say, and then try to expound it with some points uh, about that. And that is, um, a pastor is someone called to nurture Christoformity in a church culture. A pastor is someone called to nurture Christoformity in a church. I don't think pastors make culture. If they do, that's worldly. Pastors can only nurture Christoformity when the Spirit of God is at work. They nurture something that God is doing uh, in, a, in a church culture. And really, that's all I have to say. So you can, if the Cubs were playing, you could probably open that up and watch it, but they don't start till 6:35 when they're going to get beat again by the Braves, I'm uh, sad to say. I'm tired of them losing to the Braves. But I want to talk about some things, uh, central element, eight elements that pastors do that will, that form culture. And then when I'm done with that, I want to move to how pastors are called to subvert worldliness in the church. So there's two parts to our talk. And that is uh, pastors as nurturing Christoformity, and then pastors as subverting worldliness in the culture. And I'll tell you when I get to number one, but now, uh, because I'm a professor, we have introductions, and editors often tell me that when they get books from professors, they just ignore the first two chapters, because they don't have anything to say yet, and that's probably right. I believe that pastoring begins with personal formation. So when Todd said what he said, I said, amen. Eugene Peterson says that the three pastoral acts, actionable things is what Todd called them, the three pastoral acts are praying, 
reading scripture and giving spiritual direction. That's a pretty profound reduction of pastoral ministry by someone who did quite a bit of pastoral ministry. To say that it's about praying, reading scripture, and giving spiritual direction. The only people who can pray, who can, who can lock down their calling to these sorts of things are people who really do care about spiritual formation in their personal life. So I like what he has to say. The other side of this to me is that pastoring is very complicated. I'm a professor, and I think my life is pretty simple. I read books. I talk about books that I've read, and I teach students, and I go home. Uh, when I go home, I'm home. And, you know, I get emails, but people aren't dying and calling me to bury them or anything like that. And so I, I have profound respect for, for the pastoral calling. And I feel that my job is, is uh, tangential to the real task of pastoring, that I can, I can help pastors do what they do by teaching what the Bible says. So I, I respect the complication of pastoral calling. I'm, I meet with my pastor, Jay Greener, quite a bit, and I'm often just, I go away thinking, man, am I glad I'm not a pastor. You know, I have a very simple life. Really, I read books, I study the Bible, I write books. Some people don't even read them, and that's all right. I just keep writing. Something will hit pay dirt someday, and it'll float on the water. And... Um, and I discuss ideas with other people. But pastors, I think, have the complicated task of working with people, and people are unbelievably complicated to work with, you know? If they were all alike, it would be so simple. But almost everybody is different. And I, I love the statement that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, when he says, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. There's Paul describing his strategy of accommodation and adaptation and adoption in order to be able to reach people. And my experience with pastors is that they have a lot of experience of working with people and when you say what's what, how do you solve this problem? They don't usually have an answer. They say, well, with this person, I had to do this because of this and this and this and this. And it gets very particular and individual. So it's complicated. But in the end, I believe that pastors pastor people. I grew up with a model that pastors preached sermons. That was a definition of a pastor. They preach sermons. And over time, I've become convinced that that's not what Paul did. It's pretty hard to find him actually preaching anything like what we do on Sunday mornings. Paul pastored people. He was always engaged with his friends, his co-workers, engaging them in spiritual formation and theological development. And pastors are called to pastor people. 
And I believe that they're called to pastor people in the direction of Christoformity. So let me define what Christoformity is, and then uh, we'll get on with eight points. Michael Gorman has written several books, five, I think, that deal with this theme directly, but he has uh, three major ones. Michael Gorman calls the theme Cruciformity. And he has a book called Cruciformity. Not the kind of word you use in Sunday morning sermons, probably. Um, and I like what Michael Gorman says. And I, I would say I agree with him 99% except on the term. And I like the term that my professor, Jimmy Dunn, uses, Christoformity. Although Michael Gorman and I are talking largely about the same thing. Christoformity is to be conformed to the life, the teachings, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. So it's bioformity, didascaformity, I'll use the Greek words, cruciformity, anastasiformity, and, you know, there's probably no technical term for the ascension like this. So uh, it is a, it's a conformity to the person of Christ, and this is why Dallas Willard frequently talked about Christ's likeness, not simply cross-likeness. So I prefer Christoformity, but I'm largely talking about what Michael Gorman says about Christ, uh, cruciformity. And I found this statement in C.S. Lewis one time, and I loved what he said. Of course, everything C.S. Lewis said is something you can love. May I come back to what I said before, he says, he asks. This is the whole of Christianity. There is nothing else. In the same way the church exists for nothing else but to draw people into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, making them little Christs, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. Pretty good. Pretty good. And C.S. Lewis said it, so it's even better. So I believe that pastors are called to nurture Christoformity. And I want to make eight points now about what this looks like in forming. This is the cultural dimension that I'm talking about. It's not the same as cultural criticism, but I think David and others will talk about that more. And uh, I'll stick on my turf. But I believe that we are called in our context to nurture Christoformity, and it is not the same in California as it is in rural Nebraska. Uh, so uh, these things will vary, but still we are called to Christoformity. The first is this. A, a pastor nurtures Christoformity when it becomes a culture of people, a culture of people. Over and over and over, Paul talks about his pastoring of people. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, when Paul says, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. There's someone who cares about what's going on in all the local churches. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse Paul verse 7, Paul says, instead, we were like, Paul doesn't, uh, didn't take a good English class where he was taught 
not to mix his metaphors. And he could care less about that principle. Instead, he says, we were like young children among you. Now he said that he's a child. And then he said, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Now he's become a mother. All at once, he slipped into another image. But that image, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we love you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8. The irony of pastoring today is that in the recent Barna study called The State of Pastors, he said this, they came to this conclusion. This really surprised me, I got to tell you. When asked what pastors like to do most, 66% said they liked preaching and teaching the most of all the pastoral tasks. And then he said there's a big drop-off from there. One in ten says they like developing other leaders. And one in twelve prefers discipling believers. One in twelve. Evangelizing, only six percent. And pastoral care, five percent. And a mere two percent, I'm in the two percent, say they enjoy organizing church events, meetings, and ministries. I despise committee meetings. That will make me quit more than anything else in life. But we have people who think they're important. But this is, a, this is an indictment, I think, of pastors, isn't it? Uh, that that they, don't, they don't seem to like to want to be with people that much. What an odd irony about pastoring. But I think Paul liked being with his people because he seems to be in tears when he can't see Timothy and Titus. And he's in tears when he can't be with the churches and when he has to leave the churches because he loves the people so much. Second, the second theme is a pastor in working with crystal formity should work on spiritual formation in churches. Spiritual formations. There is a great Hebrew word in the Old Testament, davak, which means to cleave to, cling to, where it says that we are to cleave or cling to God. And it is words used by, a word used by Jeremiah for the fit of underwear. That's how close of a, a connection it is, that we are to cleave to God. Devak is the Hebrew word. Now, what I find fascinating about this theme is that a recent study by a former student of mine by the name of Victor Copan, who's a professor at Palm Beach Atlantic Christian University in Palm Beach, Florida, contends that personal example, personal life, is the most dramatic and dynamic and influential dimension of influencing people in spiritual formation. Not what you say, but who you are. Vic's book, I think, is called Paul as a Spiritual Director. He says this, It is my contention that the total shape of the life of the director is a key factor, if not the key factor, in the success of spiritual direction. 
And his book is about Paul as a pastor more than simply spiritual direction as we know it today. Then he said, effectiveness in spiritual direction is not to be found primarily in technique, but in the character and lifestyle of the one providing the direction. Well, you know that Paul talks about this quite a bit. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says this, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, notice the words, learned, received, or heard, or seen in me, put into practice. So Paul had the chutzpah to say, follow me. I got it right. You know, that takes some chutzpah to say to people in your congregation, follow me, because I know how to follow Jesus. And yet, Vic Copan is saying that's precisely what pastoral ministry is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and there is no letter, there's no correspondence in the New Testament more pastoral than the two hot letters of Paul to the Corinthians, or if you're critical, more than two. You know, there's debates about chapters 8 and 9, 10 to 13. 1 Corinthians 11 1, Paul says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Spiritual formation, a culture of spiritual formation in a church then begins with leaders, pastors, priests, deacons who are worthy of being followed. All right? Third, and this one, a couple points I won't develop at length. The third one is a crystal form culture is a culture of listening, a culture of listening. You know, the most common commandment in the Old Testament, I think this is true, is the Hebrew word shema, hear, hear, to listen. It is translated many times as obey. And listening is critical to Scripture. Hearing Scripture heard, it is critical to pastoral ministry to listen to people. We have to know Scripture. We have to have listened to Scripture. My wife and I, my favorite place in Italy, in the world, is an evening in Italy. Not just Italy, but an evening. And um, we've spent five or six times uh, being in Italy, and, and I like being there. But I will never forget the experience that we have of visiting uh, Norcia in Italy. Norcia is the home of St. Benedict, or in Italian, San Benedetto. One morning, we were staying near uh, Assisi in a villa, which already sounds cool, surrounded by olives. It was even cooler than that. We got up early because we're Americans, and we got on our, in our car and we drove to Norcia. And when we got to Norcia, uh, there was a big, big gate, said the Roma Porta. This is the Roman gate, and I didn't know if it was the gate to Rome or from Rome, but it was cool enough as it was. And we parked our car, and I could never read the signs well enough to know if I was going to get a fine, but it didn't matter. I was where St. Benedict was. And we walked down the street, and it was about 9 o'clock at the time, 
and the, the stores were just beginning to open. It's okay if I tell a story, isn't it? All right. I grew up Baptist. We didn't even have anything but stories. So, so we walked down this street, and right away we found a coffee shop. So we had cappuccino in an Italian uh, uh, coffee shop, which is always better than anywhere else. And we drank it. And then we got out, and it was about 9.30, and we walked, and I saw a, a store that was selling grains and cheeses. So I went in the store, and Chris took about three steps in, and she says, I can't handle the smell in here. It is terrible. Well, it was, it was the, you know, the fungus or whatever in the cheeses, and I'm sure they had been there since the 4th century when St. Benedict was there, and it was strong. And I took some deep breaths of that, that odor. And then, uh, then after a while, we walked down, and we found the central piazza, called the Piazza San Benedetto. You know, they all do this. And there was a pic there was a statue of St. Benedict preaching. All right, so I stood in front of it with a book that looked like a Bible, and Chris took a picture so I could feel like I was learning to preach from St. Benedict. And it was hot. It was about 9.45 or so. So we went into the basilica, which was right there on the, on the piazza, a basilica that was destroyed last year in an earthquake, sadly, but I'm glad we got to go there. So we went in and we sat in the last row, and it was cool, and it was a nice time to be cool. And there was literally, it was a really boring, it was almost like a Puritan church. I mean, there was no art hardly in the whole place. And we were sitting in the back row, just cooling off, talking a little bit, no one else in the whole church, when suddenly... Um, chanting broke out. Benedictine monks singing. It was 10 o'clock, and it was time for morning prayers. Well, it was unbelievable because the entire basilica was flooded with their music. And I could not figure out where they were. So I walked all the way down the front, you know, to the altar. And I don't know if you can walk behind altars in benedictine church or not but i did because there was no one in there and if no one's in there you didn't do it you know so i walked behind there was no one there and i looked over to one side and there was an opening and there were no there was no one there but a painting of saint of, of mary so i thought that's not where they're singing so then i walked across the other side of the basilica and there were stairs that went up and there was a little sign and the sign said privato well i don't know italian so, so I turned the door handle, and it was locked. So I went back and sat down with Chris in the back row, and we just were enjoying the beautiful music of the Benedictine monks. But I still was curious as to where they were singing, because they had to be somewhere. There were, it was too close of a sound, bellowing throughout the entire place. Then I saw stairs going downstairs with a, a white, cheap plastic chain across it. And I looked at it. And it said, Prohibito. I don't know Italian. So I, I, stepped, I stepped over, and I started walking down these stairs. And I got down to there was one stair left, and I realized the crypt of St. Benedict was downstairs, and it was a chapel, and they were singing. And then I got to thinking, I'm going to, uh, they're telling me to move over. Why? Because I, what's going on? 
I'm off the camera. Well, it was a good story. I'll get on this. Is this okay on this side? Okay. So I'm on the last step, and I'm, I, can, I, I can't quite see him, but I, it's so close. You're beginning to feel body heat. And then, because I grew up Baptist, I started feeling guilty <laughs> about crossing the prohibito. You know, that's like the Ten Commandments or something like that. And then I got to thinking, if, one, if I open that door and one of those monks has a heart attack, I'm in big trouble. So I went back upstairs and I sat down and we sat and listened for another 15 minutes as the monks were singing Psalm 119 in Latin. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is not just for a break, but because, this is amazing, those monks have some, the whole book of Psalms memorized in Latin, and they're not all Italians. They have it all memorized, and they chant it every week by heart. They know the scriptures. This is the hours of prayer in the Benedictine tradition, seven of them. Ore et labore is their principle, work and pray. And this is what I mean by listening. We have to become people who listen to scripture so well that we have it in our heart. That's what Psalm, Psalms teach us about memorization of scripture. But pastoring is also through the habit of listening to God speak to us in Scripture, pastoring, according to Paul, then, is also the habit of listening to people in your church. And we're not always as good at that. I know I'm not as good at that. I have things to say, not things to hear, because I'm a professor. And we need to develop ears of listening and hearing. And this whole theme uh, uh, deserves to be developed as well, but I'll move on to a fourth point, and that is this. Not only do we develop in Christoformity a pattern of listening, we also develop a pattern of speaking words of prophecy. A prophet is someone who hears from God and mediates revelation from God to the people of God. A prophet is not someone who has a Twitter feed or a blog or a Facebook page. But a prophet in the Bible is someone who has heard from God a revelation and is called to speak to the people of God that revelation. I have never met pastors who haven't had moments when they knew they were speaking prophetic words in their congregation. There are times when you say something and you go, Wow, that one took off. And it takes off. It has a life of its own. And we have to, if we're going to develop a Christoform culture in our churches, we have to be willing to let the Spirit of God invade our tongues so that we speak prophetic words in our church communications. <laughs> 